This morning I ask you to look once more at the text we considered last week in Matthew. I'm going to read the very same text. Maybe those who would look upon what I bring you in a message today and say, well, that's a topical sermon, not particularly rooted in Scripture in the usual way. But I hope you will see what it really is, is a continuation of what we were considering last time. And I believe it is very strongly rooted in this text. Listen as I read Matthew 22, this challenge to Jesus and His epic response, particularly verse 21 is our main interest today. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in His words. They sent disciples to Him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They got that right, didn't they? You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Father, help us in an area where we struggle, where we often draw our principles from our own imaginations, from human opinion, from polls, from secular principles, anchor us to be biblical, that we might listen very carefully to what our Savior has said. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year 1787, The revolution was concluded, of course, successfully. The government of these United States had been moving along in an experimental way. We did not yet have a constitution. So if you remember your history at all, the best minds of the nation came together in Philadelphia at what was called the Constitutional Convention. They knew that they had to apply their very best thinking to create a document that would form the literal bones and spine of our national life, giving it structure and protections and and checking and balancing the various powers within the country. And they knew it would be a great task. Well, one of the senior statesmen there was Benjamin Franklin. All of you probably know something about Ben Franklin from his glasses to his printing press and his wise little epigrams and sayings that he issued and his, his key on the kite string and everything else, we know that Ben Franklin was actually a genius. He was an extremely intelligent man. He was a bon vivant. But one thing he was not was an evangelical Christian, despite friendship with some of the finest ministers and evangelists of the day, like George Whitfield. But I say that because I want to emphasize that it was Ben Franklin, who's often called a deist, 
not a man who recognized Christ as his Savior, who rose in the Constitutional Convention as one of the senior men there. And here's exactly what he said. I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without him? Without his aid, we shall succeed in this political building we make no better than did the builders of Babel. Therefore, brothers, I beg your leave to move here that prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings upon our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning. And Benjamin Franklin's motion was ratified without dissent. And it was because of the simple fact that his broad and general recognition of the sovereignty of God over every kind of human government was something that was accepted by nearly every man in that room in Independence Hall. But that same broadly shared notion has gone tragically missing in the United States of America in 2008. Now, last week I touched upon the main precepts that arise out of Matthew 22, 21, this very important verse. Jesus' profound statement, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Today we remain fixed on that sentence. I've not taken a new text. And having laid out its bare bones principles last time, now I want to think much more about the applications that we might see arising from this by good and moral inference or even by other direct scriptural teaching. You could call this the second half hour of the sermon from last week. Your patience doesn't give me 60 minutes, so this is the second half of what you might have gotten. And I've known from interesting conversations with many of you that there are, of course, all kinds of side paths off this subject. People are sent off on trajectories in every direction when we talk about the church and the state. And in some ways, I'm not talking about some of the things that you would like to talk about. If we took up every possible optional subject and application, we'd be on this one text for many weeks. Well, just quickly, I want to recap the main statements, the principles that I explored last time, since I'm sure some were were not present and others could probably just use the review to have in mind. First, we, we just took it in two parts. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we believe Jesus was giving us or reminding us of a God given general honor that is due to the institution of civil government because it is established by God as his instrument of what we often call common grace in this world. I remind you that you really do need to read the beginning of Romans 13 alongside this text 
It's an accompanying text. I believe Paul certainly had the words of Christ in mind as he spoke Romans 13. You, I won't go there now, but if you haven't seen that, go there. All authority comes from God. He delegates power into the hands of men. Sinful men and women. That's the amazing thing. And yet it's because we're sinful that he needs to do this. Because the hostility and the anger and the deceitfulness of the human heart would require that there be civil laws and government. If there were not, just think, we would have anarchy every single day. There would be no civil order at all. And so what we call common grace applies to the many ways in which God blesses the world, not you know, entirely apart from salvation. His special grace is shown in salvation. But there is common grace that all people enjoy, whether they are indeed those who trust in Christ or not. And government is part of common grace. God wants the world to taste peace and justice. He wants weak people to be defended and aggressors to be deterred and wrongdoers punished, property rights established, social order promoted. The issue that we came to, and I briefly touched on last time, of when might we then disobey a civil government is a very vexing question. But I would reassert to you, without going any further down that line, that the Bible seems to show by a number of examples and implications that we would only disobey the civil power when that power deliberately contradicts or flies in the face or asks us to disrespect commandments and principles of God. Well, the second point last time was that by rendering worship to God, giving or rendering to God what is God's, we have two realms established, and we must not let them be confused And we discover that in honoring those two realms that there are limits in the governmental realm because it is human as opposed to the divine realm of God's rule over all things. He alone is supreme. He alone is permanent in his rule. Every worldly ruler, every government, every president who will ever be elected is at best in a very temporary place. And the Scripture says it is God who sets up kings and then deposes them. So we are to fear God, reverence God, that is, and worship the Lord Jesus Christ as his ruler over all nations. We are never to fear a human ruler in the same way. There's there's a certain fear that happens when you recognize if I don't obey the state, they could, in the worst case scenario, perhaps execute me, certainly put me in prison or, or fine me or cause me great harm or shame. So there's a kind of fear there, but it is not the fear and reverence that is owed to God. He alone sets up kings. We honor a civil leader, it seems, at least until that civil leader becomes a God-defying tyrant. And one of the amazing things I pointed out that we must recall, it's the last thing I'll recap here, is the fact that God has providentially overruled in history, working his plans and his purposes for the people of God when some of the most despicable, outrageous people were in government and some of the most ruthless state systems were operating. 
We need to remember that. God is not working for us only when our people, whatever that may mean, are in charge. That's enough review. Now, the main question I rise to today is to put this before you and bring it in a very direct relation to our American situation. Do the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one require a solid, impenetrable wall to be built up between the church and state? That's the big question. To begin answering it, I first want to just give you the briefest of samples of a few words from some of our founders. You've already heard from Benjamin Franklin, no Christian at all, who implored the Constitutional Congress for prayer every day and said, we're dependent on this. Hear from John Adams, our second president. This is President's Weekend, by the way. That actually was not planned in advance. John Adams, a man under-respected in the heritage of this nation, if anyone ever was, said this, and he was a believer in Christ. What were the general principles upon which we achieved our independence, he asked. I answer that they were the general principles of Christianity in which all sects can unite. Those general principles of Christianity that are eternal and immutable as to the existence and the attributes of God. These are principles, he said, of liberty as unalterable as human nature and the existence of our terrestrial world. Well, there's a Christian who you say maybe he went farther than most would. What about John Hancock? The man with the big emblazoned signature on the Declaration of Independence, a wealthy Boston merchant who wasn't particularly known for piety as far as I have ever had any knowledge of him. John Hancock, as he signed the Declaration, is supposed to have said the day he signed it, let us humbly commit our righteous cause to the great Lord of the universe and let us leave our concerns in the hands of him who raises up and puts down as he pleases. James Madison, another president. The president who, in fact, before he was president, had more to do with actually drafting the language of the Constitution than any other individual. James Madison said, Belief in a God all-powerful, wise, and good is essential to the moral order and happiness of mankind. Now maybe you say, well, you can find quotes to support any point you want to make. I absolutely assure you that those three quotes are only the tip of the iceberg of a sampling of statements from founding fathers in all ranges, those who held elective office and those who never did, to tell us and show us that there is formidable evidence that most early leaders of our republic cherished broad Judeo-Christian values. They saw the Bible's God seated on the throne of heaven. They looked to him as a Lord of creation and of providence. Sometimes they didn't always say God or Jesus Christ. They would say the great rule of providence or the Lord of nature or things like that. But they were talking in general terms quite frequently 
about the fact that the government they established was a delegated government under a divine power. It's true. Many of them were not. Evangelical Christians, they would not have perhaps even qualified to join this church in that sense, in their personal testimony. And yet in their worldview, and that's an important word, their worldview was absolutely grounded in the truths of a biblical morality. Let's also sample something from the early 20th century. One of my great personal heroes in a growing way as I have read things over the years is President Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy said, every thinking man realizes that the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and intertwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be impossible for us to figure out what that life would be if these standards were to be removed. And just in case you think I'm quoting only the conservative side of opinion, hear from a voice of a man in the 20th century, the mid-20th century, who was not known as a conservative at all and yet a great respected mind in our country, Chief Justice William O. Douglas of the Supreme Court. William Douglas was defending the idea of prayers being made in public institutions and, and governmental places like the Senate. And he made this statement in the course of defending that. Without apology, he said, quote, We are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. That, at the very least, has been presupposed throughout the life of our country for its first 200 years. Now, it's a notion deeply in jeopardy. Now, along with this comes this notion when we ask the question then. I've sampled some of what our founders have said. Back to the question, do the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one require some solid wall between church and state? Well, I think most of you know we look to a particular place to try to answer that, and it's to a place called the First Amendment of our Constitution, something drafted by those very men who met in the late 18th century in Philadelphia. Do you know what the First Amendment says? There might be a handful in this room who could stand up and repeat its first sentence if they needed to. I dare say most could not. And I assure you, most Americans cannot. In fact, most think it says something like, let the churches mind their own business and stay out of the government. Let me quote you exactly what the key sentence says in the First Amendment, since you may not know. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That is the critical sentence. Let me say it again. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Upon whom does that put a prohibition? The prohibition is on the state, not upon the church. And yet for the last 50 years in this country, shrill voices of an influential cadre of academics and activist judges that go way beyond interpreting the law to make law 
have shouted to us that this statement somehow fences organized religion or individuals speaking religious opinion out of having any voice in our national discussion of what government shall be and how it shall behave. A plain reading of the First Amendment shows it is the state that is told, keep your hands off the exercise of religion by this free people in this land. Many of you can remember, uh, I, I, it's interesting, Carol, Carol and I were watching Jeopardy the other night, and they had the teenage Jeopardy on, and they were asked a question. They had the picture of Betty Ford up, and who was this? None of the teenagers knew who Betty Ford was. I had to stop and think, boy, I, I take things for granted. I'm in the old generation now. So I probably take for granted that every young person here remembers the days of the Berlin Wall. But in the early 1960s, the city of Berlin, which was bisected by East Germany and West Germany, had a a wall put up almost overnight, a concrete block wall that was fortified more and more, and barbed wire and razor wire and gun turrets and everything else were erected there in a very short period of time by the communist Eastern government. Many of us remember that wall and the sad and terrible stories of how it, how it blocked people from their freedom. It divided families who were on either side of it. And then the amazing day came in 1991 when, with almost none of us expecting it, that wall came down. What a wonderful day that was. Well, it's almost as though some people are stating for us a mythical creation that there is an invisible and yet, in their minds, impenetrable concrete block wall topped with razor wire down the middle of this nation, and they're saying, religion, you stay on this side, and the government has to stay on that side. And that is an absolute misunderstanding, absolute misunderstanding of the First Amendment of our Constitution. The actual phrasing of the so-called separation, actually that phrase, the separation of church and state. Do you know where that came from? Take a microscope. Take a magnifying glass. Search the entire Constitution and Bill of Rights. You will not find the phrase separation of church and state. It is not there. The phrase was first uttered by Thomas Jefferson a number of years after the Constitution in writing a letter to some people. It's called the Danbury Baptist Letter. He was writing an opinion about what some people should or should not be doing in a religious situation, and he first there, used the phrase, the separation of church and state. It wasn't in the Constitution. Our founders certainly did not think that religious principle and the existence of God as a rule over all should be muzzled. You've heard some of their views, and there are many more I could have summoned if time allowed. We have a serious misunderstanding, this misunderstood wall, you have to call it, the so-called wall. You should always use that, by the way, if you want to discuss this properly, talk about the so-called wall of separation of church and state, because that's what it is. It brought no less an eminent jurist than Chief Justice William Rehnquist, the late Justice Rehnquist, to write in 1985 In an opinion, it was a dissenting opinion. He was the dissenting voice in a case called Wallace versus Jaffrey. And this is what Rehnquist, indeed, he was a conservative, but here's what he wrote. The so-called wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor 
based on bad history. A metaphor that has proved useless as a guide in judging, and it should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. That's not a preacher talking. That's the man who was the highest jurist in our land at the time that he said it. Now, the foundational truth undergirding the First Amendment of our Constitution that says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, I believe, is firmly and absolutely, why we're talking about this at all is because this is rooted in what Jesus was talking about in verse 21 of Matthew 22. I see that verse as the wellspring from which much of our thinking about this whole subject arises. Christ defined for us two distinct kingdoms, the overall kingdom of God over all things, and the narrower kingdom of a political state at a particular time in history. In his case, it was an occupied country and the Romans, and yet the principle he gave applies to the United States of America. Now, in the third large place this morning, I want to take on this in way of more particular applications. I want to ask, how does this two-kingdom view that Jesus gave us, respecting God's rule over all and respecting and honoring and obeying as far as we possibly can the state that is put over us. How does this apply to practical issues in three ways? To government itself, very briefly, to the organized church, and to individual Christians. First, Jesus' words and our First Amendment that come from it certainly put firm restrictions upon the government, any government, upon the President of the United States, our courts, all of them from top to bottom, our legislatures from the halls of Congress and Senate down to the local state legislatures, our town councils for that matter, our school boards for that matter, governors, mayors, every branch of government is decisively prohibited from telling any church how to worship, what doctrines to believe, who to admit to membership, who to exclude from membership if a church should have to discipline. The government has no voice and no right of entering into any of that. Our ancestors fled from heavy-handed religious persecution by European monarchs specifically to gain this liberty from governmental encroachment in their worship. The stories are endless. Tonight, come and learn if you don't know about the Huguenots and the bloodbath that was unleashed on them by the king of France. Evangelical Protestants who were killed by the tens of thousands until they were pushed out of France almost entirely. The Covenanters in Scotland who, dealing with both king and queen, had to battle for the basic right of biblical worship and shed their blood as well. And if you don't understand, we need to be reminded of this, ladies and gentlemen, that the precious protections that we do have from state infringement do not apply simply to Presbyterians or to Protestants or to Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox. They don't apply only to Christians Our country is a unique one in almost all the history of the world in that these religious protections apply equally to a Hindu temple, a Muslim mosque, and a Jewish synagogue. 
And we have shed our blood in wars, citizens have, to keep that protection for all expressions of faith, even that which you and I might judge to be an utterly false faith. It has that protection. Secondly, I'm not going to elaborate more on the restrictions put on the state. What does this First Amendment and this principle of Jesus have to say to the church as the church, that is, as an organized church, not just you as individuals, but all of us collectively as an organized body, or not just even local congregations, but presbyteries and general assemblies and any place in which the church is organized together. Well, it certainly does not prohibit us from speaking up. Jesus spoke up. He said plain words to emperors, to Pilate, to Herod. He stood against them when he needed to stand against them. He was even silent before them in silent protest some of the time. We're allowed to use free speech in this land of ours to address all kinds of questions of moral and spiritual value to our communities. We happen to believe as a church and our denomination believes that there are rare occasions when we might deliberate. Our General Assembly, for example, in this country might come together and think there's a moral issue of of such importance in the day that it has to issue a kind of declaration and send that to the President or the Congress and say, here is a principle you must think about. Wisely, the authors of our Westminster Confession of Faith, written a century before our country came into being, said that the church as an organized church should use that right of organized declaration or exhortation to the government very carefully and, in fact, The Westminster divines who wrote that said it should be used primarily for what they called causes extraordinary, the unusual time when the church simply cannot keep silent. If we're not careful, we can easily begin trivializing our Sunday morning worship by having various tables distributed all through the church and asking you to line up to sign petitions and declarations that would be, you know, against uh, casino gambling or against puppy mills, or against uh, any number of things that we might consider to be evil. We need to be careful or we'll trivialize ourselves and diminish our main focus, our main focus being worship. When we obey Jesus in saying, render first to God the things that are God's, I believe that demands a church leadership and a ministry that keeps a disciplined focus on our first and foremost preoccupation, which is worship of God and proclamation of the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, while we have the freedom to speak on civil issues, we actually find out that we exercise our greatest influence on the entire society as we speak and preach the transformational power of the Holy Spirit of God to change people from the inside out. We find out that gospel transformation makes men and women into salt and light, Jesus called them, infiltrated into the entire community, into the nooks and crannies of culture, school boards, corporations, elective office, PTA organizations, township councils. That's where we want our influence as Christ changed men and women, stand for truth. 
Christ-centered lives of Christians will indeed, and they have in many ways, shined as a million points of light. Former President Bush called them that, and it was a good phrase. Points of light in dark places. You see, the church acting as the church has to be very careful, extremely careful, about getting involved and entangled in what can become the quicksand of elective politics particularly endorsing individual candidates. It is not my place in this pulpit to advise you about who to vote. I've been in this pulpit now more than 13 years, and I have never mentioned a candidate's name during presidential or by-elections or primary elections or any other kind of election, even if that candidate is from this congregation. Now, this is a principle that is violated frequently, and you will watch on your evening news as it is violated frequently throughout this presidential elective year as candidates appear in the pulpits of churches on Sunday morning being applauded, being endorsed. If not actively being endorsed, what else do you need to say when you invite them in a presidential election to come and preach the sermon? That is actually against the law for a 501c3 charitable organization in this country. But beside it being against the law, it's improper. This pulpit is not the place where I must tell you who to vote for. And in fact, it's not my place to tell you who to vote for, nor any elder in this church. This pulpit is for the instruction of God's holy word to raise up the name of Jesus Christ, indeed, to teach moral principles, and indeed, to help you develop a biblical mind to begin to think about subjects like abortion and the dignity of human life and what is a just war and why is racism so wrong and so on. But not to tell you who to vote for. And then one more for the organized church is the fact that we must realize that we as the organized church have the opportunity to create and fund and work in biblically directed ministries of mercy that very often prove to be superior to many government programs trying to do the same thing. People have only awakened to this in recent time. The fact that, that biblical drug and alcohol recovery programs, when Christ is preached and Christian discipleship is practiced, have a rate approximately two to three times the rate of effectiveness in people's lives as those so-called neutral secular programs funded by your tax dollars. That's a fact. Study the data about Chuck Colson's prison fellowship ministry and how those who are discipled for Christ in prison fellowship have a rate of recidivism, that is, return to prison, much lower, drastically lower than those in any other kind of program dealing with prisoners. Just recently, you saw in the Lancaster paper an article about our... uh, Wonderful Water Street Rescue Mission here in Lancaster. Oh, there, there's some problems. You know, there's some people attracted there that huh, make people a little nervous. Well, ladies and gentlemen, take Water Street Rescue Mission out of Lancaster tomorrow. Take it right out. End it. Close its doors. And let's watch civil government try to match the wonderful and effective array of services that that ministry offers. Problems? Yes, of course. Effectiveness? Absolutely. And we as a church need to be involved in these things. Bethany Christian Services, many other things. 
counseling services in our community. Well, finally, time is nearly gone here, but what does this two-kingdom view of Jesus Christ in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one and and the correct understanding of the separation of church and state say to individual Christians as citizens. There's a lot here. I'm going to be very fast. We mentioned last time texts like 1 Timothy 2, and I think this should be put first, that urge us to pray for leadership at all levels. I've been impressed by some grassroots organizations of moms with children in public schools. You can argue whether their children should be in public schools or not. That argument's not before us. But moms who have gotten together a day a week to pray for their schools and their children's teachers. Thanks be to God for you moms, for that is pleasing to God that you would do that and see that responsibility. Should we speak up? Of course we should. If God calls you to run for office, run for office. There's certainly nothing that forbids a Christian. From There are Christians uh, saluted and praised by Paul who are in leadership positions in the government in his letters. If God leads you to run, then run. And if he allows you to serve, serve with your utmost as unto the Lord. Work in campaigns. Write letters to the editor. Protest legally and peacefully. These are your rights. Use them. And remember that only you as an individual can translate biblical thinking into a vote. A precious privilege that people in so many countries of the world do not have. I'll venture something that cuts across the grain of things you're hearing today. Let it lie. If you disagree with me, it's your right. But believe me, ladies and gentlemen, sitting home and sulking when you decide that your ideal person didn't get nominated to the ballot and you say, I won't vote for anybody, you're not only forsaking a great privilege that people have died for you to have, you're actually helping to elect the opposition. And that is reprehensible. There's no other word for it. We have a sacred duty as citizens of this country. You call yourself a pacifist, perhaps, some may. That's your right. You still have a sacred duty to honor and support the armed forces of this nation. Somebody, man or woman, wears a uniform right now and is in a place of danger so you can be safe and free. Be a pacifist if God leads you to be one. But even pacifists, I believe, are obligated before God to pray for those who bear the full weight of carrying Caesar's sword on our behalf so that the terrorist does not have free access to your front door. Finally, I believe this, and again, many will not agree. I believe as Christians we need some caution about not becoming overly enamored with the political process and with political action. Should we be in it? Yes. But with caveats. Politics are important and legitimate and campaigns have their place, but no human election will ever advance the purposes of the kingdom of God on this earth. No election and no candidate will ever accomplish what only the power of God in Christ can accomplish. I spoke with Don Eberly this past week. Many of you know Don. He's one of the wisest individuals I've ever known. 
He's been involved in two presidential administrations. He gave me his permission to quote something he wrote in an email to me. And I do quote his words. Evangelicals have cheered on many allegedly Christian candidates almost as though they think they are charged to elect a pastor-in-chief. This is not only dangerous confusion, it can become idolatry. And Don added, God did not design civil institutions to serve his redemptive purposes. Does that man believe in government? You better believe it. He's been involved in it. But what he's saying is what Jesus said. Don't confuse the two. After Christian citizens have been in their campaigns and cast their vote, we must entrust ourselves wholeheartedly to God Most High, who alone rules with perfect justice. We are called and we actually belong right now to a kingdom that is set in heaven that can never perish or spoil or fade. We need to know that every temporal ruler, every judge, every president, every legislator has feet of clay, and that man or woman will in time disappoint you. I'm going to close with a word from one of my favorite people from American history, Teddy Roosevelt. T.R., as they called him, wrote this exactly 99 years ago. Just listen to his words. I believe the next half century will determine whether we will advance the cause of Christian civilization or revert to the horrors of paganism. The thought of modern industry, remember what he's calling modern industry, folks. The thought of modern industry, 1909, in the hands of Christian charity is a dream worth dreaming. But the specter of that same industry in the hands of paganism is a nightmare beyond imagining. The choice between the two is left to us. Amen. Father, you've given us marvelous privileges as a people on this earth to have this nation. We thank you for it. We thank you for the process we're part of in this year of electing a chief executive. Imperfect as it is, we pray, O oh God, for your leading and guiding and overruling. Press upon our minds the privileges that we have and teach us how to use them rightly. O oh God, be praised as your people struggle in a sinful world to hold up the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.